Hi, Vetfolio Voice family. Welcome back to this episode sponsored by DECRA and featuring Dr. Scott McClure here to talk about management of equine osteoarthritis. While I love the opportunity to manage osteoarthritis in my canine and feline patients, I will readily admit that my equine osteoarthritis knowledge is a bit lacking. Fortunately, Dr. McClure was kind enough to join me for a breakdown of equine osteoarthritis management, including pharmaceutical, biologic, and physical management options for these patients. Seems the management is actually quite a bit different from small animal OA management, so the conversation was just fascinating. Dr. McClure received his veterinary degree from Iowa State University in 1990. He then completed an internship and surgery residency at Texas A&M. Dr. McClure became certified by the American College of Veterinary Surgeons in 1995 and received his PhD from Texas A&M in 1996. He was in private practice in Oklahoma and then returned to university practice at Purdue University. Dr. McClure was at Iowa State from 2000 to 2016, specializing in equine lameness and surgery. He then returned to private practice and established Midwest Equine, a surgery and sports medicine facility in central Iowa. Dr. McClure became an American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation Diplomate in 2015. He's published many peer-reviewed articles and has presented scientific and continuing education seminars nationally and internationally. Well, for this episode, I am joined by Dr. Scott McClure, and we're going to do another equine episode here. I'm so happy that we're able to get some more equine information out there and have some more of these talks. And today we are focusing on equine osteoarthritis. So Dr. McClure, thank you so much for joining me. Excellent. I'm glad to be here. I think it's 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 kind of cool. And if you're normally, I guess, a uh, maybe a canine sports practitioner, a lot of this stuff is applicable across the board. I mean, there's some variations, but a lot of what we deal with for with arthritis in the horse is going to be similar to what you're dealing with it in the dogs. Uh, but obviously, uh, my interest is heavily in the equine side of things. I think that makes this first question all the more interesting, talking about that crossover between horses and dogs and some of this stuff. What about clinical signs? What are some of the clinical signs of osteoarthritis in the horse? Do those mirror dogs at all? Well, sure, to, to some degree or to all degrees, it's probably more how we evaluate what we're seeing. And most people in the horse think about osteoarthritis, at, you know, as lameness. Lameness is just a variation in gait due to inflammation. And inflammation is, you know, an across the board uh, scenario, heat, pain, swelling. So normally when we're looking at uh, at our horses, you know, we're looking at you know, lameness, head bob, short strides, performance issues, you know, maybe compared to your dog, uh, um, who was recently evicted from the office here. But, you know, the uh, the dogs, they may not want to jump off the couch. Uh, the dog may be getting a little bit slower when you're out hunting, or, you know, loading cattle or whatever. It's, it's pretty much it's just the same as us, the dog arthritis is uh, an across the species issue. So it's it's there. And it's something that just has to be dealt with. Absolutely. And I know that we're we're finding in dogs and in cats that osteoarthritis is maybe a, a fair bit more common than we pick up on on our physicals and histories. Would you say, I guess, what's the commonality of osteoarthritis in horses and what are some of the risk factors to be aware of? So, well, let's go with risk factors first. I think 
you know, it kind of depends. I, I kind of categorize them somewhat into age type things. So your risk factors in your young animals are typically going to be a developmental issue, uh, osteochondrosis, osteochondritis type lesion, where there's structurally something not quite right in the joint uh, that, that starts the inflammatory cascade. In the older performance animals, uh, more of the injuries or the arthritis is, is what, I, what I call, you know, cyclic loading, just basically wearing out too many reps. You know, when we're asking some of these horses to, to jump and land, uh, over and over and over. Every time we do that, um, you know, we're putting a pretty significant load on the coffin joint and fetlocks when they come down. You're you're loading those hocks and rear ankles pretty good going up. And it's just uh, basically kind of a wearing down a, a cyclic loading thing. And you never can completely exclude the single traumatic episodes. You know, those things happen, the step in a hole, damage a ligament that makes joint instability. But uh, for the most part, we're looking at... Um, you know, wear and tear type issues in the joint. I mean, what we see when we talk about the wear and tear in the joint, um, and then you can relate that back to what we're asking these, these animals to do. And that's why we see kind of different groups of locations for arthritis in different disciplines. You know, we obviously, the obvious thing there is the thoroughbred racehorse. They tend to have the issues in the, in the carpi and the, and the forelimb fetlocks uh, based on loading. You take your hunter jumper category, those horses, you know, we look at, see the osteoarthritis more frequently, uh, forelimb fetlocks, forelimb coffin joints. Uh, you switch it to the Western performance horses, you know, where we're asking those horses to stop, slide, spin, you know, work a rope. Um, those issues are going to tend to move to the rear end where we see uh, more hawk and stifle issues. And so those those categories all make sense in what we're asking them to do. Um, it's just like you you know you, if a major league pitcher is going to have elbow issues before he has other issues most of the time. It's just what what we're trying to do uh, athletically with most of these horses. Sure, that makes a lot of sense because um, you know some of these things that we're asking these horses to do. We're having a great time. They're having a great time, but these are maybe not natural behaviors for the horse yeah. that their their joints are built for. Exactly. When we're talking about osteoarthritis, I know, you know, of course I'm again, coming from the small animal side, but uh, you know, we take some physical factors into account as well as pharmaceutical management. So what are some of those physical factors that we can keep in mind in these horses who are showing signs of arthritis to help mitigate their, their pain and their discomfort? So, you know, one, just the, the obvious simple before we get into more details is, and I put this in for some of my trainers, it's the reps. How many reps are we getting on these horses when we're training? And kind of a side note is, are we training horses or are we working on fitness? And I think uh, a lot of times, particularly the, the individual horse owner forgets that they want to pull the horse out and, and train to do to rain or to do something but the horse isn't fit so whenever we're training an animal that's not fit um, we're asking for more problems fatigue etc all contribute to potential development of arthritis from missteps overloading etc so just watching the number of reps getting our horses fit watching their weight that's you know pretty seems like pretty obvious things but it's all extremely applicable then when, when I start thinking more about physical modalities in the horse, one that's used pretty much across the board uh, is just plain old cold. Whether we're talking about ice, cold water, you know, after work, 
helping cool these joints out and decrease the inflammation right up front. Cold therapy, as you decrease the temperature in a, in a distal limb in the horse, uh, a 10 degree Celsius change in the distal limb will actually decrease the inflammatory enzymes two to three times. So wow. those, those things are, are very significant, particularly, you know, preventative as well as early in the therapeutic levels. A lot of people don't really completely understand cooling the distal limb in a horse. Obviously, the dog, you know, this does not going to be applicable very well across the board, getting your dog to stand in ice. But ice is going to be um, is your friend and standing the horse in ice water is your most effective cooling mechanism, uh, cold compression um, mechanism where you're circulating cold water with intermittent compression is very effective at cooling the distal leg. Running cold water over the leg is probably better than nothing, but good old ice is 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 your friend. Um, one of the most common, you know, simple therapeutic physical modalities that we have. In the horse, again, unique to the horse that doesn't really apply uh, in other species, obviously, is shoeing. Again, one of those things we may not think that much about most of the time. Uh, but fairly recently, there's some pretty interesting stuff that's come out of, of CSU uh, with rear limb lameness and shoeing. And what they found was in, in horses with particularly proximal um, hock, proximal metatarsus uh, lameness, those horses had a higher propensity or were more likely to have the long toe, low heel or the negative plantar angle. And so you know, we've always focused on the forelimb at those angles and looking at the, how the forelimb foot angles affect coffin joints and angles and stuff, or coffin joints, fetlocks, et cetera. But, you know, this information really sharing what's happening in the rear limb is important too. So how these horses are shod is, is a major proponent in the development of arthritis um, in the rear legs also. As we talk about physical therapies, another thing that's kind of near and dear to my heart is shockwave therapy. That's um, high energy pressure waves. Uh, it's been around, geez, 25 plus years now. A lot of information uh, available there. It's kind of interesting. We we started the dog discussion. It's not what I went to, went to start out with today, but we do know that, uh, again, the shockwaves have been evaluated in dogs and horses. In horses, the initial applications were in lower hock joint or tarsal metatarsal distal intertarsal osteoarthritis. Uh, we saw clinical improvement in those horses. Uh, we're a little confused as to the why. Uh, the mechanism was kind of unknown. Over time, we've kind of developed some more knowledge. Again, this group at CSU looked at uh, the osteochondral fragment model and shockwave therapy and did see some decreased lameness uh, in those horses with shockwave therapy. But we also know, we, we started it, I'll go back to the to the dog thing, Dogs with hip joint osteoarthritis uh, have been shown to have decreased lameness following shockwave therapy. So again, a, a physical modality that's applicable uh, across the board and across species. Kind of wandered to the dogs there. We normally, I'm normally not allowed, my wife's a small animal veterinarian. So normally when I speak of dogs, I usually get corrected, but she won't <laughs> listen. To, she won't listen to this. So we'll be fine. <laughs> 
It, it all sounds good to me. And and I think you're doing a great job just kind of bringing the whole thing full circle here. And actually, as you're talking about cross species, um, I actually have a friend who's undergoing some pretty significant physical therapy right now. And she said shockwave it has been one of the most effective pain management strategies that they've they've t- done with her. Yeah. And I think whenever we can utilize these physical modalities, when we can use ice, shockwave, shoeing, you know, when we when we can utilize those things then we it leaves us to go on to the next steps with the anti-inflammatories and things it just gives us more steps in the overall process and things that we can add in here you know without potential side effects you know you know reaching for the bottle of phenylbutazone is is clearly an effective anti-inflammatory but every time i reach for the bottle of phenylbutazone i need to be looking at everything else that i'm reaching for because this does require a significant multimodal approach in in when we're, we're dealing with osteoarthritis i couldn't agree more it's it's heartbreaking when you get to that point and you're like there's nothing else i can do we're doing everything here and you know your animal is still painful um so doing that step stepwise approach multimodal therapy and really focusing on those physical elements um, I find to be super important in small animal as well. Yeah. Now we've, I think we've certainly driven home the importance of these physical modalities. Let's talk a little bit more about the pharmaceutical, about the biologic options here for these patients. What kind of pharmaceutical or biologic therapies do we have available? Well, that suitcase has expanded immensely since at least I began practice. The one thing that's always in that suitcase is the NSAIDs we just talked about, phenylbutazone, flanixin, diclofenac. Those things are in that suitcase, and you're going to pull those out of that suitcase over and over. So we're not going to exclude those, okay? I don't want to sound like we're going to go away from those. We still have to control the initial inflammation, and those are a great reach. We're not going to talk a bunch about NSAIDs today. Everybody's familiar with those in general. But but going from there, then we I kind of group them into some different things, uh, different ways to look at them. We still have the old standard, corticosteroids and hyaluronic acid, very effective. We'll talk about that a little bit more. We have the biologics, the PRPs, the amnions, the IRAPs, important. We have some newer physical uh, intraarticular materials like polyacrylamide, which are very useful. And then again, recently, well, for a long period and more recently, we have some intramuscular materials that are effective in controlling arthritis. So kind of you, those are kind of the way I I categorize those things. And then, you know, it's the question is when do you reach for each one? When do you mix them together? And that's always the ongoing question. So one question that came to mind when you were going through the categories and, and stop me if I'm getting ahead of you here, but with the steroids, talking about the steroids and the HAs, we're talking about NSAIDs as far as injectables and then steroids as far as injectables are the steroids are those being used systemically or are those more locally in the joint so very good question so the uh the the typically in typically the the NSAIDs for day-to-day use in the horse is going to be oral and the corticosteroids that I'm referring to are going to be intraarticular and the the horse is a little different in that we're a little more careful with corticosteroids systemically due to laminitis and those potential concerns so when I'm in my mind when I'm talking about corticosteroids and osteoarthritis we're talking about intraarticular use particularly triamcinolone betamethasone uh, methylprednisolone is is still used some those have all been fairly consistent, fairly well evaluated in the horse. 
and those would be the primary ones. The industry has gone more heavily towards triamcinolone for intraarticular use in, in the horse, but irrespective of it, uh, the corticosteroids, they are our most effective anti-inflammatories. They decrease inflammation. They downregulate genes in the cell nucleus uh, that decrease the inflammatory cascade. So whenever we have these inflamed joints early or late in the cycle of osteoarthritis, some corticosteroid uh, is effective. And, and I say some is because we all recognize excessive corticosteroids can, uh, can have some negative effects in the joint also. But uh, the corticosteroids to me remain a, a mainstay uh, in, the, in the control of or manage, maybe probably management of osteoarthritis is, is better terminology. If, if we could see osteoarthritis coming and you know we, we keep backing it up, but if we could, if we said, ooh, that this joint is going to develop arthritis next month, uh, so to speak, uh, I would put steroids in today. So I'm, I'm not saying I wouldn't use only steroids, but we can't exclude corticosteroids from what we're, we're doing. Triamcinolone, betamethasone are going to be the, the big players there. Um, to some, you know, they've been shown to be counterprotective uh, at, in some situations. Uh, dose of triamcinolone, you have anti-inflammatory effects two plus weeks, two, between two weeks and a month. So when, when used correctly, uh, it's they're an extremely important part of what we're, what we're trying to, to do. Absolutely. And um, you said they can be chondroprotective. That was actually a question I had is, do we see damage to the cartilage with chronic use, but potentially actually chondroprotective? Yeah. So again, some of the osteochondral fragment model information suggested that they were disease modifying. So the potential decrease to progression of osteoarthritis, which is going to come from stopping the inflammatory cascade of the cycle. And, and we've seen the different, uh, you know, you can close your eyes and take yourself back to your lectures uh, when somebody slapped up the, uh, the picture of the synovial membrane, the synovial fluid, the cartilage, the subchondral bone, and all of the interactions of, you know, the release of metalloproteinases and the gags and the digestion and the negative feedback mechanisms. Um, corticosteroids are your best mechanism to slap back all of those degradative cycles quickly. So that's, that's where that to me is the very effective or very important component to, to managing OA. Okay. That makes sense. While we're on the topic of injectables, in particular intraarticular injections, um, HAs are intraarticular as well, correct? Correct. For the there, there is some uh, systemic HAs available, uh, as well as some questionable validity of some oral materials. But the, the majority, when we're referring to hyaluronic acid in the horse, it is associated with intraarticular use. Hyaluronic acid, we know, is a, a normal component of synovial fluid and cartilage. Uh, it's mother nature's lubricant uh, within the joint. So the more the merrier, it's, we can't, we've never really been able to uh, do better than mother nature, uh, but we can sure help mother nature along by adding a little bit more hyaluronic acid back to the joint. It's interesting that uh, just simply the hyaluronic acid, when we, we put a dose of HA in a joint, it has anti-inflammatory effects, scavenge-free radicals. There's a number of things that that HA that we put in specifically does. But the HA that I put in a joint has a relatively short half-life, uh, 96 plus hour half-life. So when I put HA in, 
that HA I put in is not just staying there to work for me for months, but it has a major positive feedback uh, mechanism. So it will stimulate the production of more hyaluronic acid within the joint. And so that's really the mechanism that we're getting the benefit, I guess, that we're getting from that HA. You know, a lot of the, when we're talking about OA and osteoarthritis in the horse, kind of the standard has become how does a material perform in the osteochondral fragment model, and which is, it's a consistent model for us. And with the hyaluronic acid has shown less cartilage fibrillation in the joints that were treated with hyaluronic acid. So when we look at you can see the cartilage, you know, the nice white glistening cartilage uh, that we'd like to see. Cartilage fibrillation is when that surface starts looking like a little bit like a kitchen carpet uh, and before it progresses all the way to some leftover 70 shag carpet. Um, so you, you're laughing. Do you have 70 shag carpet at home? Um, I do not. I do not. But I, it's a really powerful visual. Like you visual. can see exactly how so, this is happening. So we would we would like to stick more with uh, the, the, the good, nice, shiny white linoleum than, than the carpet in the joint. And HA does contribute to, to that. Most of the time, um, we're, we're going to utilize HA, a hyaluronic acid, in combination with a corticosteroid. Okay, That is a lot of times the front line or the initial therapy. We can decrease the inflammation. We can restore some of the normal homeostatic lubrication to the joint. And that is kind of, for me, like, okay, we get the, get the fire out, get the situation under control. And then once I get the situation under control, then I'm looking for my next solution, my long-term solution. And that's really where, for me, the biologics start creeping into this. Um, maybe not creeping. It's, it's, they don't really creep in. They just blast in the front door because this is where we're going in the, in the industry. We're, we're using less and less corticosteroids, more and more biologics, because it's just, it helps to help these joints heal rather than just patch, you know, patch and patch and patch. Them. So the, the biologics is kind of the future and probably what, you know, we'll be discussing a lot more over the next few years. Absolutely. And, and that makes sense to reach for these biologics to help support the joints in their natural function and, and support healing and reduction in inflammation, rather than, like you said, kind of patching the holes along and along, which eventually we run out of options in, in that strategy. Yeah. What kind of biologics are we talking about? Well, there are the, again, that, that suitcase we talked about earlier, where you have a potluck of things we're going to treat. I mean, there's a lot of things in it. I think one of the, the more commonly used things that's been around a little bit longer is platelet-rich plasma. It's fairly simple to understand. We, in our blood, you know, we have platelets floating around. The platelets are full of granules and alpha granules, and, and they have all of these growth factors that are, that are beneficial to us. Obviously, the, you know, if they ask you what growth factors are in platelets, you could always just start out with platelet-derived growth factor, and you've got TGF beta. Uh, you've got vascular endothelial growth factor, fibroblastic growth factors, just all of these things are in these little packets floating around in the alpha granules. And so what we can do is we can take blood, process it to concentrate the platelets, try to get our white cell count down so we don't have an inflammatory response, and then place that platelet-rich plasma back into the joint. PRP is is one of those things where there's still a lot of gray zones. You would think uh, at this point, 
Someone could say we need X number of platelets. We need less than X of white blood cells, um, but there's still a lot of gray zone um, in that. And associated with that, there's a lot of gray zone in the horse. How many platelets does that horse have floating around in the bloodstream? Uh, how we process that. And then there's things that starts popping up like how do non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, how does uh, uh, reserpine is apparently not our friend when we're trying to harvest platelets. Um, so there's, there's other things in the, in the background that we also have to account for. But in general, uh, we're at a point with PRP where we have mechanisms to readily harvest PRP, even though there's some variability. And we have pretty much consistency. I mean, there's going to... Uh, we have mechanisms that make it easy for the veterinarian to harvest, concentrate, and put the PRP back into our patients fairly readily in our hospitals. And it's, you know, on, in the scheme of costs and things, it's, it's fairly affordable. You have devices um, like, like the ProVet uh, for an equine practitioner. We can do that in the hospital. Uh, it's also, you can do this in a, you know, in a clean environment on the farm. Um, so th those kind of things start opening doors uh, for more horses to be treated with um, platelet-rich plasma for, you know, early arthritis to help manage arthritis. So PRP is kind of one that's, I think, pretty uh, becoming very standard in what we're doing. I was going to ask with the the PRP, are we, is that a joint injection as well, or is that um, yeah, intramuscular? I think, no, P the, the biologics, the, at least, I mean... The, they're going to be, we're talking about intra-articular intra use. The platelet-rich plasmas be intra-articular. Uh, Amnion-derived products, intra-articular. Pretty much uh, everything we're talking about until we get back to the Adequan and Penisan, to me, are, are, I'm talking about intra-articular use. I know that equine veterinarians in general use a lot more intra-articular than, than our small animal counterparts. I think we are, I mean, we're, we're willing to try to coach up these, uh, canine veterinarians a little bit if needed so hey i mean if we can eliminate side effects and get some effective therapies i i want to use the excuse of you know our critters are they won't stand there for it very well and those joints are a lot smaller but probably you know with the right coaching i'm sure there's yeah. there's some options there there you go you mentioned amnion based products and irap um what what are we talking about with those well, again, a couple more biologics from two other two different ends of the spectrum, so to speak. Well, just amnion first. So uh, amnion derived, I refer to them as amnion derived products, but there's a number, there's some on the market now, and there's a lot more interest and research going, but it's kind of interesting. And again, as you can tell, I simplify things. But so if, if you're a fetus floating around in a little bag of fluid, um, there's two things you want to do. You want to grow. Okay. So you got a lot of growth factors, you know, you want to grow up be a nice big horse or something at some point and you don't want your mother to digest you okay those are the kind of two positive things you got so you have a concentration of growth factors and a concentration of anti-inflammatories and it and inflammatory materials so you know and in these amnion derived materials there's there's over with some of the protein characterizations that have been done there's over a thousand proteins many of them are growth factors and cytokines that are applicable to managing osteoarthritis so that's kind of an area where a lot of things are going now um, initially they were used and we just talked about intermuscular versus intraarticular on the human side in particular they were used periarticular they were in injected around the joint capsule in the horse 
as we've alluded to uh, equine veterinarians we are going to put something in the joint I, it's just I guess it's how we're selected at the end of vet school. If you have a desire to go treat a joint uh, directly, you're going to equine work. If you have a desire to maybe not go directly to the joint and you maybe you're a small animal, I don't know. It's some, something that's bred into us or learned behavior along the way. But uh, at this point, we these amniotic materials are being refined to the point we're using a lot of them intraarticularly. And our goals are basically to change a catabolic environment in a joint into an anabolic environment and to you know we're actually at the point now where we uh, we see managing osteoarthritis into management and restoration to normal tissue versus the old concept of just patching it try to get by we have arthritis we know it's going to progress we just have to deal with it well we can't completely eliminate the concept that it's there it's going to progress we have to get along but now we we are looking at mechanisms to say you know we're actually going to cure something or make it better and amnion and prp are two of the big factors i i think in mechanisms to actually talk about joint healing the other thing that we just popped up there, you know, you brought up is the IRAP. The IRAP's been around. It is, um, you know, a different terminology for it. Autologous condition serum, interleukin receptor antagonist protein. We look at it. It's in the category of biologics. I look at it a little bit more as, as, as a quality anti-inflammatory without corticosteroid effects. It does definitely definitely, I probably shouldn't say definitely, but there are also other, we, we know there's a number of other growth factors and materials in this, in this soup. The concept of, you know, that it was just interleukin receptor antagonist protein, just a pure protein, which is, it is a concentrated increased concentration of that, but there are a number of other factors involved in growth factors and cytokines in this. So when you use a, a dose of orthokine, um, you're getting your anti-inflammatory, your interleukin receptor antagonist protein, and a number of other factors in there. For the uh, the small animal people, may not be quite as you know used to utilizing this material, but what we do is we harvest uh, blood uh, aseptically. Uh, it gets incubated for 24 hours with uh, silica coated beads, and basically we fire up those white cells to do our job and increase the concentration of the interleukin receptor antagonist protein. Then we it's then it's filtered and then re-injected a series of injections. Been around, I can't even tell you how many years it's been. It's been around a while now. Uh, it's kind of a tried and true mechanism to manage these cases. Um, I'm sure it's one of those millions of, of doses have been used um, and uh, just you know, very, very useful biologic mechanism for us to have. The next one I wanted to make sure and ask you about is you mentioned polyacrylamides. And I will be honest, I don't know that I have had ever heard that word before you and I started speaking. Well, okay. Well, you, you, you'll either be happy or sad. You asked me that question. <laughs> yeah. So, so polyacrylamides, um, they're, they're inert materials, polyacrylamides, um, you know, they're, they're used uh, like in gel electrophoresis because they're inert. Polyacrylamides will hold fluid in diapers. Polyacrylamides can be refined to contact lenses. They can be made different ways, different amount of cross links, different percentages of polyacryl of acrylamide um, to be a number of things. So, and they're a hydrogel, which means they can hold fluid. 
And so one polyacrylamide in particular was designed to mimic normal synovial fluid as far as viscosity. So the other thing about a polyacrylamide is it, it has no natural enemies, so to speak. So there's enzymes like hyaluronidase that break down hyaluronic acid. There is no naturally occurring enzymes that break down polyacrylamide. So we can put a dose of polyacrylamide into the joint to provide a long period of lubrication. The other thing of interest, like with the, with the Noltrex product, is we know it actually adheres to damaged cartilage surfaces. And we know it actually decreases the coefficient of friction. So it will stick to, we go back to discussing our carpet, it goes, but it'll stick to the exposed cartilage. And basically, well, it's, it's, you know, it's like spilling something on your linoleum floor, it makes it slick again. And it sticks there and it stays there. So it can kind of protect the cartilage below it. So it, it's newer in the, in the industry. It's been around an, a few years now. A lot of people are just kind of catching on. The information is becoming readily available as, as we go. But it's a very interesting uh, mechanism or very interesting thing to add to this suitcase because we've got our biologics. We've got our corticosteroids and HA. Now we have... And, you know, an inert material to help lubricate the joint. And at this point, we've got a fair amount of information. And we, like I say, we know it adheres to damaged cartilage. We know it decreases the coefficient of friction. Those things are all beneficial in the joint. So uh, it's kind of an exciting, another exciting tool to pull out of that toolbox. Absolutely. That's very cool to have these inert materials that can go in and kind of mimic the joint's natural function. All right. Well, so, you know, and of course, circling back around to our intramuscular products here, Adequan and Penasan, which, you know, certainly some species crossover there, but can you tell us a little bit more about the intramuscular agents? Yeah. So, and again, the intramuscular agents remain a, a major component to what we're, what we're doing here. And sometimes they don't get maybe the discussion in the, the press, I guess, if you, you know, that, that they deserve and in, in where they, they fit into this program. You know, Adequan's been around a long time. Polysulfated glycosaminoglycan. It's made from biologic materials. Um, that material is, is basically administered uh, four doses at seven doses at four day intervals to get you out to a 28 day mark. And it's been evaluated as decreased synovial effusion, decreased fibrosis. So it's, it's, it's an old standby. It's been around and it's, it's been effective for a number of years. A lot of times it, you know, we refer to these things maybe a little bit more prophylactically. Clients will put these horses that are a little higher risk um, on it prophylactically. And there's also therapeutic benefits to them. The Adequan uh, is a polysulfated material. And uh, the thing that we're seeing a lot more about right now in the U.S. is the Penisan, which is another um, polysulfated material. Penisan is kind of interesting um, from the standpoint that it is actually derived from uh, beechwood tree hemicellulose. Um, so it's, it's derived from a, a tree component. In the United States, we're a little slower on the adaptation, so to speak. Um, it's been around in Australia and New Zealand for a number of years. It's a fairly well-known uh, material. A little bit more knowledge is coming forward now because uh, the, recently a penisan, the zycosan, is FDA approved. So we have an FDA-approved uh, penisan on the market in the United States now. We can go clear back to 2012. 
um, where it was evaluated in the osteochondral fragment model. So geez, we're talking uh, over 10 years ago now. And it showed decreased cartilage fibrillation when it was used in the osteochondral fragment model. Um, again, so we maintain the cartilage more with the smooth glistening surface than the shag carpet in those that were treated with the penisan. The most recent data comes out of the FDA study where there were 237 horses with actual clinical osteoarthritis. So that study was done in clinical cases. Uh, horses were recruited. Part of the horses, half the horses were treated with penisan. Half the horses were administered a saline control. And what they found was a significant improvement or in those horses or a significant decrease in lameness in those horses that were treated um, with the Zycosan product. And that is a, a particularly interesting study from the standpoint, in this case, we're treating horses with clinical osteoarthritis with radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis. So in the scheme of things, um, to be enrolled in the study, they had to be grade two to three lame, which is pretty consistent head bobbing lame. They had to have radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis. So those horses are those that are at the top of the peak and coming down on the backside. Those horses are, are advanced OA cases when you have radiographic evidence. And a large percentage of those horses improve clinically. So then we start, you know, as we talk about this suitcase we're carrying around, treating those horses is helpful. But having this material in the horses, uh, you know, more to the left-hand side of that curve that we can get back back down to where we started versus trying to slow the uh, slow the the fall to failure with the the advanced cases probably did not say that very clearly whatsoever but I think I understood what you were saying I think you were saying it we can kind of bring them back to a better clinical grade of lameness versus just trying to keep them from deteriorating too drastically yeah correct so the, 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 the point that, you know, for the study, they want to make sure these horses have osteoarthritis. So the lameness and the radiographic evidence, you have advanced osteoarthritis. Okay. I would much rather treat the horse that is maybe not sitting down quite as hard into a barrel, maybe a horse that's just starting to get a little coffin joint inflammation. Those horses with the Zycosan, we're going to be able to like a very notable inroads into versus the ones on the other side of the curve. So while the FDA study was done with those that have radiographic evidence, et cetera, uh, I guess my point is being, I would really like to treat these horses more towards the early on aspects, the initial inflammation, the prophylactic approach. And that's where we're really going to see a lot of benefits from, from this product. In, in those that are sitting on top of the curve waiting to fall off on the negative side, they still had 60% of the horses improve at least one lameness grade. And which is a very, when you look at it from the standpoint of who was enrolled or the horses that were enrolled, those numbers are to me very, a very positive set of numbers. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say that's a, a pretty powerful study there. And, you know, if we're talking about using these more on the prophylactic side, you know, I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about any potential negative effects. Are there side effects that we should be aware of with these products? The question at hand really that, that, that comes up is what are the potential side effects of penisan? And because we know penisan is a heparinoid type material. 
And so it's the potential effect on clotting factors. And in this FDA study, there was no effect, no significant effect on the um, APTT and the PT or the clotting times, intrinsic and intrinsic uh, clotting cycle times. So no effect um, in that 115 that were administered the drug. Penicillin is more of a thrombolytic or helping break down microclots than it is preventing clot formation. It's a very weak anticoagulant, uh, one sixth to one tenth the effect of heparin. It would take almost 30 times the dose of penicillin to have the same effect as heparin. Okay, so it's very weak. In these studies, uh, the FDA studies, there were no issues. Those questions arise from its early use or other applications at different doses for different applications. And it's just not a clinical factor in, the, in these horses. At that dose and how it's being utilized in the horse, um, it's just not a clinically a f clinical relevant concern. Um, sure. The intermuscular, it's, it's safe. Um, FDA approved it because it was safe. And like I said, it's been around for many years in Australia, New Zealand. And if there were issues with that, we would be well aware of it. Safe, effective, and FDA approved. That's, there you go. Perfect. Perfect. Dr. McClure, this has been such a great talk. I, I feel like we need to have another conversation because I even had like a few more questions popping up in my head where I'm like, but what about this? How do we give this and all this? And you're just a wealth of information. Thank you so much for joining me and for going over all of this. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to do this. Dr. McClure, thank you so much for joining me. As I said before, the conversation was just fascinating. So many different options for these patients that in some ways differ quite a bit from our small animal patients. So I really enjoyed learning about all of it. I wanna say a huge thank you to DECRA for making this episode possible. And thank you to all of you listeners for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Betfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.